Well, I mean, I, um, welcome to Ben's. I'm great to have you here. My name, if you haven't met me yet, my name is David Shaw. I, um, I'm now serving here alongside Ben as one of the pastors. I've um, been here since um, the summer, so I'm fairly new to things here. Um, there are some handouts for this first session, and there are some, um, some spares over there. Who needs a handout? Um, great. Let's get those around. Super. All right. Um, the... The hope in this first session, as Ben said, is to, um, to get us um, thinking through the scriptures about um, some great um, themes of holiness and mission. Um, as someone said to me when we were thinking about the themes of this conference, light in, in the darkness, holiness and mission, um, there are two words to make Christians feel slightly guilty. Holiness, not doing as well as I'd like to be. Mission, not doing as much as I feel I should be. Um, it's two topics that quite often make us feel um, quite guilty in the Christian life. Um, there are also two topics that you don't often see put together. Um, in some ways, we feel like they're slightly in tension, uh, at least in, in some people's minds. And we might think of holiness as being separate from the world, distinctive, um, and um, mission um, involving a lot of contact with the world. Um, in, at least in some people's minds, um, they're slightly hard to put next to one another. Um, how do we maintain our purity and distinctiveness? Um, how do we go and reach the world? Um, and so um, I wanted to try and think, um, how might we best put those together? And uh, it strikes me that the, perhaps one of the most helpful ways to do that is to add a third thing into the mix. Um, I want us to think about holiness, mission, and the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, and I'm hoping that that helps us have a, a bit of a fresh vision for um, the great blessing of holiness, um, the great privilege of mission, um, and to think, um, what is our part in those things? What has God done for us? What has he given us in the Lord Jesus um, to enable us to, to pursue those things um, and to enjoy them? So um, that's the plan. It is going to mean um, a bit of a long run-up to thinking about holiness and mission. Um, we are going to go into thinking about what the image of God means. I'm about to show you a picture of a 9th century Assyrian king, and you're going to think, what's this got to do with anything? Um, hopefully, um, as we go through, that will become um, a little bit clearer. Um, it's a picture that will help us think about um, what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, let's, um, on the handout, go there. The image of God and humanity's holy mission. Um, if you've um, heard any teaching on the image of God, you'll know um, through church history, people have had lots of different ideas about what it means to be, um, to be made in the image of God. Um, in recent times, a lot of help has come from realizing the Bible's not alone in speaking about images of God being out there in the world. Um, and um, as you look at some of the other cultures around Israel, um, you realize that um, the Old Testament, uh, the book of Genesis and the opening chapters in particular, are engaging with lots of those ideas. Um, so one example of a, of a culture um, alongside um, Israel and how they think about these things is captured in that picture quite nicely. Um, this is Ashurnasirpal II, um, 9th century BC. And um, the thing to realize about this picture is that you could fold it in half. It's, it's a mirror image. Um, in the middle there, you've got um, what the Assyrians, um, how the Assyrians would think of the, essentially the tree of life. Um, above that bush or tree um, is um, their god and the god Asher. Um, you've then got the king, and he's pictured on both the left and the right. Can you see how they're mirror images? 
Um, so um, from there we move out. Um, you've got to the king who is there in the presence of the God around the tree of life. And then on the outside edges, you've got angels, um, angels who are guarding this space. Um, so you can you see, it's a very Eden sort of picture. Here is a king around a tree of life with the God in a sacred sort of space, and it's a place that is guarded and bounded by angels. Uh, all very Eden. Uh, in lots of these ancient cultures, um, the king, um, like this sort of king, would be described as an image of God or an icon of God, um, God's representative in the world. Um, if you work around all the, um, the different cultures around ancient Israel, Egypt and Assyria or Mesopotamia, all around there, you would find similar sorts of language. Um, the idea that the king is an image of God, um, that he is a son of God, um, that he functions as a kind of priest. Um, you can see it in that picture. Um, here he is with a, with a particular access to God um, that no one else is, um, is allowed to come into. Um, means that in the ancient world, a palace is also a bit like a temple because there is God's image, the king, sat on the throne in this, um, in this building. Um, a couple of examples there on the handout um, to show you this sort of language coming through. Um, so a couple of Egyptian examples. Um, Pharaoh is described the shining image of the Lord of all and a creation of the gods of Heliopolis. He, um, the God, has begotten him in order to create a shining seed on earth for salvation for men as, as his living image. That's a very um, Genesis sort of language coming through there. Um, or um, there's another text where an Egyptian god says to the king Amenophis III, you are my beloved son who came forth from my members, my image, who I have put on earth. Um, so you see this language. Um, the image of God um, spoken to the king and the king being described as a son. Um, so in the ancient world, um, if you speak about the image of God, it's going to create a lot of associations for people. It's going to say, we're probably talking about a king, a ruler, someone who has a particular access to God, and somebody um, who could be thought of as the son of God, as begotten by God. Obviously, as we've been saying, lots of echoes of the book of Genesis. Um, but Genesis will um, use lots of those same ideas and use them in some quite distinctive ways. Um, some of the similar ideas, um, we've touched on them already, but let's list them out. Um, Adam and Eve are described as being made the image of God. Um, they are placed in a garden, um, and they are called to exercise dominion. So they are called to rule um, and to reign over this world. Um, this is a bounded, holy place. Um, it will be um, guarded by angels as they are expelled. Um, so some parallels there. Um, the, the language of Psalm 8, um, later on, will talk about humanity crowned um, just a little lower than the angels. Um, so the idea of the human um, beings, Adam and Eve, um, they are crowned, they are rulers over this um, sacred place. Um, but that's not just for their own benefit, but rather they are to mediate blessing to the world. Um, they are to be fruitful and multiply, and this knowledge is to spread throughout the world. Um, so um, they are priestly in that way. Um, it's their job to guard this sacred place, to protect it, um, to keep it, and um, to spread blessings, to mediate blessings to the world. So there's lots of ideas there that other cultures would recognize, 
but there are some very striking differences. As, as Genesis tells this story of what it means to be made in the image of God, um, at least in two ways, there are some very striking differences. Um, first of all, who gets to be called an image? Um, in all of those other cultures, it is simply the king, the king alone. Um, I'm reading one passage this week that talked about how the rest of us, we're just shadows of God, but he is the image. Okay? Um, so elevating one particular person over all the rest. Um, only he is the image and his subjects are not. Um, that's how the ancient world would have seen it. But of course in the scriptures, every human being is placed in that um, royal space. Everyone, every human being can say, I am made in the image of God, and so that royal, priestly sort of calling is mine. Um, here's um, somebody, Richard Lintz, on this point. In contrast to the pagan mythologies of royal dominion, Genesis 1 affirms the royal reflection in all of humankind, and not simply the king or other office holder. It is humankind considered as a whole that represents the invisible, bodiless God. The entire human race is God's royal stand-in. It's a lovely phrase for thinking, what is humanity? Every single person, humanity as a whole, um, is there as God's royal stand-in, his image in the world. So who are called images? Um, every human being. That's very distinctive. Um, and then, who are they imaging? Uh, to put it mildly, the ancient gods weren't all that nice. Um, if you read their creation stories, it basically boils down to loads and loads of warfare, a battle to try and win out against other gods. Usually somebody gets killed, ripped into a thousand pieces. That's how we get the stars. Um, we've been watching the Percy Jackson series with the kids on Disney+. Plus. It, it's very much like that. It's this utter cosmic conflict. Um, and at the end, out of all of the kind of bits and the no-man's land, um, one god emerges as the victor, dripping in blood, and he thinks, I've had enough of doing hard work. I'm going to create some minions for myself. And that is the lot of humanity. Um, in most of these stories, um, you find um, gods who create human beings, um, covered, dripping in blood after having won out this conflict, and then determined um, to rest, and so they create humanity to do their work for them. Um, so John Walton um, is a, a, a writer who's done a lot of work on parallels to Genesis in, um, in other cultures. Um, he writes, um, people were created to do the work the gods were tired of doing and to provide for the gods' needs. So these gods were needy. They needed feeding, they needed shelter, um, and so human beings were, were there for it. Um, again, one just small example of that. Uh, one, uh, this is a Mesopotamian text, I think. Um, Create a human being that he may bear the yoke. Let him bear the yoke, the task of Enlil, that's the name of a god. Let man assume the drudgery of God. So human beings are created to be slaves. Um, now, here's the key point. Imagine you are this king, a pharaoh, or an Assyrian king, or whoever. Um, you are to image God in the world. Um, what is this God like? Well, he has other people to do all the work for him. He gets to rest and he gets to treat everybody else as slaves. And that is um, how those kings were imaging God. But now I think our task is to image 
an utterly different God in the world. A God who is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather to image a God who gives and gives and gives. Who gives life and breath and everything else to us. Um, We um, worship a God who doesn't look at us and think, how strong and useful is somebody? But he loves all that he's made and is especially attentive to the weak and the vulnerable. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that wonderful? So our God remembers that we are created simply from the dust. Um, and yet he has compassion on us rather than thinking, um, I need more of these workers or better workers to relieve my burden. Um, we worship a God and we seek to image a God who invites us into his rest rather than creates workers so that he can rest. Um, he is a God of life. He nurtures and he multiplies. Um, he's a God who is not at all threatened by our multiplication. Um, Think of that and the contrast to um, someone like Pharaoh. Um, In those opening chapters of Exodus, what is Pharaoh's great concern? They're getting too many. They threaten me. It's a zero-sum game. It's a a battle of who is the most and who is going to overwhelm who. He must crush them because they're getting too many. God is not threatened in that way. Um, God is able to say, be fruitful and multiply um, because um, he is um, not at all threatened by that. So, um, uh, writer will mention a few times, um, Richard Middleton um, puts it really helpfully. The sort of power or rule that humans are to exercise is generous, loving power. It is power used to nurture, enhance, and empower others non coercively for their benefit, not for the self aggrandizement. I can never say that word. <laughs> aggrandizement of the one exercising power. Okay, Really helpful to think, what is the human calling then? Lots of parallels to this ancient world, that we are God's representatives in the world. We are to image him. But we are to image an utterly different God to the kind of gods that the other nations worshipped. This God is utterly different, a God who gives and loves, who has compassion, and who seeks to serve, who is not in it for himself. Okay. That's most of the weird stuff done, um, most of the most unfamiliar things done. Let's, um, let's draw some thoughts together and ask, how does that help us think then about holiness and mission and how they fit together? Well, first of all, to, to be an image of God in the world is to have that calling, to be a representative. You are supposed to be um, that's, that royal stand-in for God. So it's inherently a witnessing um, ambassadorial sort of role to be, um, to be made in the image of God. And then holiness. Holiness to be like God, um, well, that is the human calling too, to image him, to reflect who he is, um, to be a true and accurate representation of God and his character rather than to, to distort and give a false impression of who he is. And that, at our creation, is the great privilege and calling of humanity to serve him in that way, to know that he's our creator, to be those who receive all of his blessings and who seek to share those blessings with his world. So it means that holiness and mission are not at all in tension with each other. 
Um, We are created that we might bear God's image, that we might be holy, that we might be God-like in that sense, and that we might represent him well to the world. Um, Holiness and mission, then, are great privileges um, to be able to to worship our creator, to know him and to make him known, um, rather than the two kind of riders on salvation. Okay, I'll save you, but I've got two things for you to do for me. Um, No, they are part of God's good design for creation for his humanity. And then um, to, to think of the idea of, of holiness in, in connection to the idea of being made in God's image um, helps us, I think, to, to think quite broadly about what godliness is. Maybe one of the challenges that we have with godliness is that we, we often narrow it down to just a very few things, and we think godliness means avoiding that and not doing that and keeping that under control. Um, there is a much, much broader thought here to what does it mean to image God rightly? What are the things that we're going to need to say? Uh, we're going to need to say, first of all, that I am not God. Uh, here's um, Michael Allen, um, a, uh, a theologian who's written a really, um, a really hard book on sanctification. And we'll talk about some resources later on. This is a stretching one. Um, but here's quite a nice one, and he throws in an illustration, and I'm, so I'm grateful for that. To identify human beings, male and female, as the image of God is to say that the humans are not themselves divine. A replica is first and foremost not an original, as anyone purchasing a print of the Mona Lisa surely knows. You cannot um, go down the high street, buy a picture of the Mona Lisa, pop it on eBay, and try and flog it for millions and millions of pounds. People know it's not the original. Um, It is um, less than that. That is part of godliness, and part of holiness um, is recognizing that is our place in the world. Um, That is something that, of course, our world in all sorts of ways is seeking to deny. Um, All of the tech giants at the moment are basically telling you that the possibilities are endless, that you have the capacity to be infinite, to know everything, to always be on. Um, Part of godliness is learning to say, I am an image and not the omniscient, omnipresent creator, um, and to rest in that, um, to, um, to resist that temptation, to think that I can be like God in ways that no human being can. I am not God, but I am an image of God. Um, and so um, we are called to be like God in every way that a human being can be like God, to reflect his character. Um, it's a point that um, uh, I've heard a few people make recently, When we think of God, there are his attributes which uh, no human being can have. All-knowing, all-present, those sorts of things. We'd quite like those, um, but actually no human being can be like God in those respects. Um, There are ways in which we can be like God. Righteous, holy, compassionate. Um, We don't always rush towards those, um, but that is what we are called to be. Um, An image of God. Um, called to be like him in every way that a human being can be like God. Um, And to remember that that is true of everyone else I meet. That everyone else we meet is made in the image of God and exists to image him. Um, This is one of the areas that is going to um, temper or to to, to control how we go about mission, for example. Um, We are always going to go about mission recognizing that we are dealing with somebody who is made in God's image. If the way that we go about mission that is manipulative, that is forceful, that is overbearing, 
that just treats people as numbers that we want to tick off and claim for ourselves, if we are treating people as anything other than human beings made in the image of God, then we are not doing mission in the way that we are called to, recognizing um, who people truly are. Um, likewise, in our holiness and discipleship, um, we need to treat those um, in our care and those that we're seeking to, to reach um, as those who themselves are made in the image of God. Um, it's a point that um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, puts brilliantly. And I think this is such a significant passage for how we think about um, serving um, God's people. Uh, he's talking about the, the danger that we slip into, lots of judgmental speaking, um, judging others in how we speak, and the need to control that. He says, where this discipline of the tongue is practiced right from the beginning, each individual will make a matchless discovery. He will be able to cease from constantly scrutinizing the other person, judging him, condemning him, putting him in his particular place where he can gain ascendancy over him and thus doing violence to him as a person. Now, if he resists that temptation to judge and to stand over them, now he can allow the brother to exist as a completely free person as God made him to be. His view expands and to his amazement, for the first time he sees, shining above his brethren, the richness of God's creative glory. God did not make this person as I would have made him. He did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate or control, but in order that I might find above him the creator. Now the other person in the freedom with which he was created becomes the occasion of joy, whereas before he was only a nuisance and an affliction. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, that is, in my own image. Rather, in his very freedom from me, God made this person in his image. Such a powerful passage for helping us think what we are trying to do in our discipleship. Um, there, is, there is the extreme end where um, discipleship can be something really quite controlling, where we set up a relationship with somebody where they become, um, because we've decided it to be so, um, very dependent on us and, and really quite regulated and controlled by us. And that's an extreme end and one that we um, want to be really alert to. Um, I think this time last year at this day, you were thinking about some of those, um, those dangers. Um, in other ways too, though, it, it is easy for us to slip into um, the sense that we have a particular image of a believer that we would really like everyone to fit in. Um, if in our churches, the peoples um, who we celebrate and encourage um, always look the same, have the same sort of background, then we are implicitly saying, this is the image. These are the options within which really you ought to be fitting. Um, so to be really careful in our discipleship that we aren't... Um, creating some image that people must be um, squeezed into um, rather than thinking um, each person um, enjoys the freedom um, and God has created them in the freedom um, to be um, made in his image um, and not in ours. This is also one of those places where we are going to need to be um, more and more countercultural. it seems to me. Um, this idea of um, treating other people as being made in the image of God, recognizing their freedom from us, um, everyone with that dignity of being made in God's image, um, in a world where more and more those things are being denied. 
Um, there's a, a clip that's been going around on social media in this last week by the, the writer Yuval Noah Harari. Um, you may have seen it. it. It's actually quite an old talk that he gave from about nine years ago where he says that human rights are simply a story. It's a story that we've invented. They don't exist. If you cut a human being open, you don't find any human rights in there. They're like a woodpecker or a jellyfish. Um, a very bold argument that says um, there are no inherent human rights. Um, that is a fiction that we've created. Um, and uh, in lots of ways, we are seeing a culture that more and more does treat human beings simply as material. Um, material to be adapted, material to be disposed of, um, if they are in the womb, if they are um, elderly. Um, and so one of the ways in which the church is going to be countercultural and must be so, um, is in this particular area, to be recognizing um, the image of God in every single person that he's made, um, seeking to, to protect and to champion that. That's going to be part of our mission, part of reflecting God um, in the world. Holiness, then, um, as we're trying to sketch out, is a very broad thing. Um, to, to live in a way that honors God in the world, if that's what holiness is, then it is going to mean rightly embracing our place as his creatures, not trying to be more than we are. Um, and then it's going to be thinking, um, how do I um, mirror God in the world in ways that reflect his compassion, um, his generosity, um, his love for all that he's made? Um, and um, the value um, of human beings created in his image. Uh, we're nearly at five past. Um, we've only really covered the first couple of chapters of the Bible, and we are planning to, to push on through. But I think now might be a time to pause. Um, why not just take a moment? You might want to jot down a question. You might want to jot down just a, a reflection or go back and just think, that particular thing, that's been helpful, or um, I want to think a bit more about that or, or something. Um, just a moment, just to um, have a mental break for 30 seconds, jot down a question, capture a thought. What have we said so far? Um, we're thinking about holiness, mission, and the image of God. And the image of God teaches us to hold those things together, to think of um, humanity's calling to be reflecting God in the world, um, to be godly, to be um, holy, um, and um, to be um, sharing that blessing, representing him to the world, and um, that more might come to, to know him. Uh, the, the theme of the image of God then largely seems to disappear from um, the rest of um, the Old Testament. It comes up in, in one or two places. It, it's made really clear that human beings, um, despite the fall, still remain in the image of God. Um, but clearly, humanity walks away from that calling um, to, um, to live as God's creatures, to represent Him in the world, um, to make Him known. Um, we turn away from God. We are um, deformed by idols. Um, we come to, to reflect and represent the other things that we worship instead of God. We reject God's authority. We assert our own. Um, and so in lots of ways, the, um, the image of God 
um, is um, born by humanity, but the, the other things that we worship become dominant. Um, instead of bearing God's image, um, we, um, we worship idols. Um, but the, the work that we've done in saying the image of God has to do with being God's son, um, his king, his representative in the world, that helps us realize that the story is carried forward in other ways, um, and in particular in the life of Israel. Um, the way that God speaks about Israel um, is a very Adam sort of language, um, that this um, calling, this human calling, is taken up in particular by Israel. Um, so um, as God speaks to um, Israel and thinks of, of her in, um, in slavery in Egypt, um, God speaks of Israel as his firstborn son. Um, as um, he gives the law in Exodus 19, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, this idea that um, Israel picks up the calling of Adam to be God's representatives in the world and to be ruling, to be a kingdom, um, to be priests, to be a kingdom of priests, um, and um, to be a light to the nations. Uh, Israel's story then is a reminder of how holiness and mission ideally go together. They were called to be a holy people. They were given those laws that they might be a great light to the nations. Israel's story, though, um, becomes a reminder of how um, things can go wrong. Um, as God's people pursue that calling, um, they can become too much like the nations. Um, that is surely the, the major note of the Old Testament. Um, it is why God warns his people in advance that they mustn't fall into the worship of the other nations because they are going to become more barbaric and they are going to turn away from God and come under his judgment um, as they start to worship those nations, as they become too much like them. Um, but there is um, also the strand through Israel's history that they become too hostile to the nations. They see themselves as separate from them and um, perhaps better than them or just in an antagonistic relationship with them. Um, think of uh, Jonah, the one prophet who was sent to the nations, doesn't go because he doesn't want the enemy of God's people to experience God's blessing. And he knows that's what God's going to do. Um, you see it in um, the way that um, there is so much opposition to the mission of the early church um, to reach out beyond Israel to the, Samar to the Samaritans, to, um, to the Gentiles. And the dangers of um, being too much like the nations, but also too hostile to the nations. It's one of those little phrases that quite often um, people use to, to describe the, the calling of the church, to be in the world, not of the world. Um, two very helpful things to say. Um, absolutely, we are um, in the world. Um, there's no point trying to get away from that. Um, and um, we have all sorts of creaturely responsibilities um, as being in the world. And we don't want to be of the world, um, to use that language that Jesus uses of the church, um, of himself and his followers. We're not to be of the world. Um, but we must also say for the world. Um, and that's the kind of third part. In the world, not of the world, and for the world. That is why God called Israel not to be separate and, um, and kind of vacuum-packed and isolated from the world, um, but that they might be the light to the nations Israel then, in her story, um, fails um, as in that calling. Um, what um, was Adam's calling um, to be that firstborn son, to be the king, the priest? Um, we see um, he fails and Israel fails. Um, and so Jesus is the one who picks up um, that great mission, um, that holy mission. 
Um, a couple of passages that just um, flag up for us how clearly he's identified as the image of God. Um, Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we read, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Um, now, of course, um, Jesus is a um, unique image in lots of ways. Um, he comes from the Father to perfectly reflect who God is, to reveal God to the world in a way that no one else can um, as a human being. Um, but he also fulfills these callings of Adam and of Israel. Um, as you see, Jesus um, resisting the devil in the wilderness. It's a replay of Genesis chapter 3. It's a replay of Israel's temptations in the wilderness um, and her rebellion against God. Where Adam fell, where Israel fell, um, Jesus fulfills that calling. Um, he is um, the true son, the true king, the true priest, and the one who um, in himself fulfills those um, callings and those patterns. But he doesn't um, exhaust them. Um, it is not the case that um, those jobs are now sort of ticked off. Um, that what Adam needed to do and what Israel needed to do has been so fulfilled by Jesus that there's nothing else left. Um, it becomes really clear that um, those same things become part of how we um, see the church um, and our calling. Um, so um, in obvious um, ways, um, the New Testament draws on the language that was used of Israel. Um, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Um, in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Um, or heaven's song in Revelation 5, um, the elders and the four living creatures worship the Lamb. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Um, so lots of language that says um, the church's calling is to pick up um, Israel's calling and um, to be that um, representative of God in the world and um, to be that holy people um, that draws the nations. Um, we do so, though, with much more confidence that things will go better than they did in the life of Israel. And so one of the things the New Testament wants us to know about is that there is a new and better covenant. Um, and that means um, there is far more hope that we can fulfill this calling um, than there was in the life of Israel. Um, what do we enjoy under that um, new and better covenant? Um, the forgiveness of our sins, um, something that we are um, probably very familiar with um, seeking to teach and help people understand. Um, our adoption as sons into the Son. Um, so um, we are adopted as um, sons of God um, through, um, through what Jesus has done. Um, that is worth just emphasizing because it, it's something that hopefully we're hearing now with some slightly bigger ideas in play. Um, to be called a son of God um, is to be called what Adam was called, what Israel was called. It's another way of saying you have a job in the world. Um, to reflect God um, and to make him known. And then sanctified, and that we are not only forgiven of our sins, um, we're not then just released back into the wild, um, but rather with our sins forgiven, we also receive the blessing of being sanctified, 
of being um, declared and made holy. Uh, least likely church in the New Testament to be called that is wonderfully called that. Um, the Corinthian church to the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6.11, they're told, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And here's Calvin really helpfully putting this alongside the forgiveness of sins. And by partaking of him, that is Christ, we principally receive a double grace, namely that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven instead of a judge a gracious father. So through Christ's blamelessness, he is sinless, he suffers on our behalf, and that means that when we look up to heaven, we no longer have a judge, we have a gracious father. But secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. Um, it is um, a wonderful way of saying we don't, when we think of the blessings of salvation, just think about the forgiveness of sins. And we also um, are sanctified by Christ's Spirit so that we may grow in blamelessness and purity of life. Um, so Mike Allen again. Sanctification is a gift and an action from God upon and to us. It cannot be reduced to an area of our soul formation or soul care. Um, is that sometimes how we, how we think about sanctification and growing in godliness? I wonder if maybe it is. God's done his bit, the forgiving of sins, and sanctification is the thing that we now need to work on. It's down to us. Uh, be like those kind of thank you letters maybe that um, your mum made you write after Christmas, um, that it's not just the thing that you need to do, but it's the thing you need to do to show that you're grateful for the thing that he's done. Well, it's not like that. It is, notice, as much as justification, it is the gift and action of God. Um, it is what he has given us. Um, that double grace or that double gift that God has given, um, as Calvin says. Um, so it is the second of God's great gifts to us. Um, nor is it just an ongoing process. Um, we sometimes think of it that way, I think, that justification happens once for all, and uh, our growing in holiness is only ever a kind of gradual thing. Um, but notice um, that language from um, the passages we've just read. Um, uh, as um, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, you were washed, you were sanctified. And actually, the way that it works is we can say God has, in Jesus, sanctified us, made us holy, set us apart for him, washed us and cleansed us. And that allows us to then um, live that out and more and more experience that and um, to grow in that. That is, um, I think, one of the things that is helpful as we come back to the idea of the image of God to see how the New Testament speaks of um, sanctification and that image. We'll see that same pattern. Um, so Colossians chapter 3, uh, there Paul writes, Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Do you see there both a definitive thing that's happened in the past? What have they done? They have taken off the old self. They've put on the new self. One of Paul's many pictures of what it means to become a Christian, of what baptism symbolizes, to strip off and take off Adam and to put on Jesus, to be clothed in him. 
That's what we've done. That has happened. But then that new self, verse 10, is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image, uh, in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Um, We have taken off that old self. We have been made new. We have been sanctified. And now increasingly more and more, with the Spirit's help, um, we are able to, um, to live that out more and more. Um, it is where um, Paul then turns that um, thing that has happened into an encouragement to, to keep on doing it. Ephesians 4, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So there you are. What is the great gift of salvation? Um, it is that that image of God can more and more be restored in us, and um, that we can, um, having been given a new self, um, we can more and more put that on, that each day we can think, I need to get dressed today. Um, I need to decide, am I going to go back to that old way of life, or am I going to put on that new self? Um, and wonderfully, that new self means that we can be like God in every way that a human being can be like God, um, clothed in true righteousness and holiness. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 puts it in in similar ways. We all, with unveiled faces, are reflecting the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Um, This is the Lord's work in us. Um, As much as we um, seek to put off the old self, put on the new, um, this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Um, and more and more we are being transformed, that we bear God's image more and more. Okay, let's, um, let's sum up with a couple of um, reflections, and then we've got um, a few minutes for, um, for questions and comments and reflections. We'd love to hear um, what's, um, what's brewing. Um, implications. Um, first of all, that idea that sanctification is a gift again comes in through those um, verses really clearly that um, this is not the thing that we do after God saves us, but rather it is part and parcel of what what God wants to give us. Um, He forgives us his sins, that he might come and dwell in us by his spirit, that he might renew his image in us. Um, So this is um, holiness as we think about it. The first thought I'd love you to go away with is, that is a gift of God. Um, Alongside my forgiveness, he has given me the gift of, of holiness. Not something that I have to do, not something that's a matter of depriving myself um, because I feel like I need to pay something back. Um, No, it is part of God's gift to us that that image might be restored, that he could give back what the fall has taken away. To to read those passages um, about God restoring his image in us ought now as well to be firing some thoughts of our responsibility to the world. Why does God create humanity in his image that the blessing might go to the world? So when Paul speaks about that image being restored in us, one of the things that we must always be thinking is, um, therefore we are now better equipped to go and represent God in his world and to make him known. God creates images and restores images that he might be known. Holiness and mission go together. And then as we've been thinking about these great themes, um, perhaps it just helps us think what it is that we're offering the world. Holiness is probably one of the tougher sales. Um, 
become a Christian, be holy. And that will set up all sorts of associations in people's minds and not many of them positive. But to, to think of the image of God being restored in us, finding our place rightly in the world again, um, actually invites people to let go of trying to be God in their own lives, of trying to be infinite, of trying to be their own creator, and gladly um, finding themselves in a universe where there is a creator who loves them and sustains them and grants them rest and sleep and creaturely joys. Um, there's, a, um, there's a humility and a settledness um, that can come from, um, from thinking of ourselves that way rather than endlessly feeling like we need to create and sustain ourselves. Um, and then the promises of this great freedom um, from um, what's Paul said, these deceitful and destructive desires, um, that is what we are being um, set free from. So um, part of the gift of holiness is actually freedom from desires that in the end are destructive. Um, to, um, to be able to hold that out um, is, a, um, is a helpful thing. And then finally, to, to live for another and seek to glorify him. Um, that is, in some ways, is what the gospel comes down to, isn't it? Um, that um, I am not going to try and impress the world with who I am, um, but rather I am going to live for another um, and find my, my place in a story that is bigger than me. Um, that, again, is, is challenging. Our world, in lots of ways, loves to, to think that the world revolves around them and that um, this, the task in life is to, to seek glory for ourselves. Um, but what we're invited to here, to recognize that we are created in God's image, that that image might be restored through Jesus, um, is an invitation to, to live for another and to glorify them, something that in the end is less self-obsessed, um, more outward-focused, um, more joyful, more able to receive as gifts and to give thanks. Um, okay, uh, there's six or seven minutes left before we break um, when you might like to move cars. I'm going to say something very quickly about resources. So I listed out um, there on the handout um, things that you might find um, helpful if you wanted to dig into these things a bit more. Um, most of those books are on that second table over there. So um, if you want to browse those just to kind of get a feel for what, what they're like, um, then, um, then do. Um, this nearer table, um, this stuff's for free. Um, so these are um, called Primer, which the FIC for the last, um, well, for over a period of years was publishing. They are guides to one particular topic in theology, um, and the idea is that they help you understand it from the scriptures, understand how the church has thought about it over the years, and then you see what difference it makes to ministry. So they're designed to be quite practical guides to, to issues of theology. Um, there's one in particular, the green one, that's about holiness and sanctification, um, but there's a whole range of topics there on um, the end times, justification, um, the spirit, spiritual warfare, all sorts of topics. Um, the FIC, because that series has come to an end, um, they've just put um, them all online as PDFs for free. So if you're an electronic sort of reader, then go and download all those PDFs. Um, if you um, would rather have something in your hands and to scribble over, then please just help yourself. Those are free. Um, so those ones are free. Those books at the end are not free. Um, nor are they to be taken away, but they are for browsing if that's a help to you. Okay. Questions about that or anything that we've covered? Yeah, please, great.
No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So one of the, I, I mean, I think um, the answer to your question, I think, is in there. So how are we different from the angels that um, God remarkably to humanity has given um, this particular responsibility um, to, um, to bear God's image and so to enjoy this relationship with him? Um, and so um, the angels are God's servants and um, and I think the Bible in some ways speaks about um, how the angels have um, particular roles and functions within the old covenant um, as um, Jesus comes to, um, to earth um, to become a human being. Um, then um, he is um, ruling and reigning um, and um, that humanity is going to rule and reign with him. So the argument of um, Hebrews chapter 2 um, would talk about how um, humanity with Jesus is going to rule and reign um, in a way that um, humanity hasn't until Jesus has come. Um, so our, our position relative to the angels um, is, um, is due to, to change, I think, in, um, in the way that Hebrews 2 talks about humanity being made lower than the angels for a little while. Um, so uh, in simple terms, I think the difference is angels are... Um, uh, are not made in the image of God, are God's servants, um, and so there is a particular privilege that is given to humanity to be, to be those who image him. Um, and it's part of God's, um, it's a mysterious thing and a, and a wonder that, um, that he does choose us. I, I find it very tempting to think Gabriel might be slightly more impressive than me in most, in most social situations. Um, and yet, um, wonderfully, he uses and, and chooses us. Yeah, thank you. No, that's really helpful. Yeah, thank you. So um, that's right. As Paul, in some of those passages, Colossians um, and Ephesians, he is particularly applying it to how we relate to one another. God is restoring the image of God in us um, and therefore put off deceitful practices and speak the truth to one another and those sorts of things. So this ought to transform the way that we relate to others. And in God's design, that itself is an evangelistic missional sort of thing, that as the world sees the way that the church relates to each other, um, that we deal with each other humbly and graciously and compassionately, that that itself is, is a witness. So part of the things that we've been thinking about here as a church is, is trying to work out 
How are there ways that we can help our non-Christian friends just witness more of Christian community happening? And because the Lord Jesus says that is how people will know that we are his disciples and, and the witness of that. Um, but it will, it will also be something very distinctive as you um, seek to, to live for the Lord in your workplace and to think of holiness in those broader terms as um, how can I um, be um, humble and patient and trusting the Lord um, in, in whatever we face at work? Um, how do I um, honor people who disagree with me um, one of the things about our culture at the moment, I'm sure we'll spend more time on this today, is just how shrill and condemning we are of anyone who disagrees with us and to try and model something different to, to honor the image of God in people that we disagree with. That, that will be a distinctive thing. Yeah, yeah that's helped just as an example. Mm. I've got a Christian colleague, and, and frustratingly, he's, you know, quite annoying. <laughs> And are they here today? The nitty gritty of working that out yep. is how not to become a sort of humanist automaton who's, who's kind of like, oh, you know, I'm not going to get involved in any meaningful discussion about any, obviously avoiding gossip's important, there's, there's something to think about. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, I guess it's just those, it's those kind of things that. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's a reminder that um, not only in other people, in us, this is still an ongoing process. That image of God is being renewed in us. And, um, uh, and part of the great witness of the church is, is actually precisely how we handle that. So um, the ways that we do deal graciously and compassionately with others, that we, that we seek to, to properly understand um, what is going on with somebody um, and um, to, um, to care for them in that way. Those are things that, that you can be modeling as much as um, it's um, not always simple. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you. We'll stop there. Um, we've got, uh, let's see, um, a break. Let's go to just past quarter two. Um, if you need to move a car, do. Um, if you need to refresh yourself in. Um, uh, Jenny, have we got, is there more? There's still more pastries. Um, so do come back for seconds. We'll start again just after quarter two. Thank you.